This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 25th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The contrast couldn't have been clearer. New British Prime Minister Theresa May speaking in Davos about the need for global free trade, and new U.S. President Donald Trump extolling the virtues of protectionism. Cato's Tom Clardy and Ryan Bourne sat down with me to discuss Brexit, the European common market, and some politics of global trade. Theresa May, the new prime minister, um, said Brexit means Brexit, even though she wasn't really a supporter of it. And now we have, uh, for people who are watching from afar, seemingly out of nowhere, uh, this uh, sudden demand to have a parliament have its say about this, which seems to go against the very idea of a referendum. But please explain why parliament is, is involved here in something that the people uh, themselves chose. Well, so Britain had a referendum, June 2016. Um, they voted for Brexit. The problem was it wasn't clear what Brexit meant. So that referendum had been established by legislation in the British Parliament. Um, but it really just said when the referendum would happen. It didn't say what effect it would have. So it didn't obligate uh, the government to then pursue any particular form of Brexit. Um, it didn't say anything about the future economic relationship that Britain would have with the EU. Um, it didn't actually even give the government the power, it turns out, um, to implement Brexit. Uh, it was simply, uh, in legal terms, an advisory referendum, which didn't have any immediate legal effects. Um, and so we've had this Supreme Court case. The government basically argued um, we have the right to unilaterally, using executive power, trigger Article 50, which would be the means by which Britain starts the ball rolling on its departure from the EU. Um, they said, you know, it's an established principle of British constitutional law that the making and unmaking of treaties is a power that um, adheres to the executive. So we can do this. We don't need Parliament to vote. Um, some people objected to that. They thought that Parliament should have to have a vote on it. Um, and the Supreme Court has ruled in favour of those people. So the Supreme Court's reasoning was basically that, yes, OK, um, it involves withdrawing from a treaty, leaving the European Union. But actually, it involves an awful lot more than that. That Britain, when it joined the EU, it didn't simply sign a treaty. It also passed legislation, went through both houses of parliament, was signed by the Queen, um, which gave domestic legal effect to EU law, um, which also created a series of legal rights that were enforceable in British courts. Um, and so their view was that uh, simply triggering Article 50, leaving the European Union, it would involve a significant shift in Britain's constitutional arrangements, first of all. Secondly, um, that it would involve taking away certain legal rights from British citizens, um, which had been implemented by primary legislation, um, and that you can't do that according to the British Constitution without an Act of Parliament. So the situation as it stands now is Parliament is going to have to vote on whether Britain can trigger Article 50 to leave the European Union or not. Of course, this is all a very interesting constitutional uh, debate, but as with so many other Supreme Court cases, and I imagine the situation is the same here in the US as well, the practical consequence might be particularly insignificant. Um, and one of the reasons for that is just the, the sheer politics behind this. Um, if you were to map the votes according to leave and remain totals across all of the constituencies in the UK, 
and modelled them as if it were a general election, Leave would have won an overwhelming majority of about 92 seats. That's bigger than even the the majority that Tony Blair had in his landslide election victory um, in 1997. So the practical consequence of many um, MPs, members of parliament, who if they decided to vote against the triggering of Article 50, given the huge leave votes in their constituencies, I think many of them would get into the 2020 general election and find themselves quickly out of work. So there's a big binding, I think, political constraint to actually get this through, um, despite you know the uh, the Supreme Court's ruling today. So this is effectively a foregone conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth saying they might not even last till 2020 if they were to try and stop Brexit at this point, because, of course, it would be, it's a little more complicated than it used to be, but it's still within the power of the British Prime Minister to engineer an early general election. Um, And the government has been very, very committed to this idea that they're going to implement Article 50 by the end of March this year, 2017. Um, So I think any effort to really subvert that, um, it could trigger a a very exciting um, period in British politics, which probably wouldn't be all that exciting, um, at least not not in an optimistic sense um, for those people who are trying to oppose Brexit. Okay, so uh, one of the discussions... uh Tom, that we had uh, last year about Brexit was, sure, uh, Great Britain is going to leave the European Union, but it is entirely probable that uh, Great Britain will remain within the European common market. Uh, Where does that stand now? And does the departure from the European uh, common market actually mean uh, you know, the opposite of what a lot of the campaigners for Brexit were calling for, which is freer trade. Well, uh, it's it's pretty hard to believe, Caleb, but yeah, I was wrong about that. Um, I know that when we talked about this in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit referendum, um, I, I felt fairly confident, actually, that whatever the rhetoric that there'd been during the campaign, um, that the simplest and uh, easiest route for the government to take would be to leave the European Union but remain a member of the European Economic Area. Now, I think what became clear politically um, since the referendum, if indeed it wasn't clear at the time, um, is that the UK's position on immigration um, was really inconsistent with continued single market membership. Um, and I thought that there was some possibility of a fudge there. But basically, um, other European Union policymakers have been absolutely clear um, that you can't separate out the free movement of people from the free movement of goods, the partial free movement of services, and the free movement of capital that forms that single market. Um, and so I think because Britain was determined to take control of its own borders, have an independent immigration policy. Single market membership really was no longer sustainable as a a political idea in Britain. Is that because this is a package of rights and obligations that European common market membership would uh, impose upon Great Britain? Right. So th- that, that's the idea. It's a common package that we can't have just some of it. We can't just pick and choose. Um, and so really the, the, the position has evolved to one where the British government is going to pursue a bilateral trade agreement, um, probably a fairly deep and far-reaching bilateral trade agreement, but one that I think will necessarily stop short of the comprehensiveness of the single market. Well, I think one of the reasons lots of people thought the single market exit would be the, the, the easiest and most straightforward was just because we've been in this organisation for over 40 years and it's quite difficult to disentangle yourself from lots of this uh, legislation and, and regulation. And obviously there's a lot of adaptive um, policy, a lot of policy areas where you've got to adapt to your legislation accordingly. So what the government has done to try to avoid that cliff edge is they're going to introduce a so-called Great Repeal Bill, which is anything but, but which actually transcribes all existing 
in EU law and regulation into British law so that from now on, that law will continue to apply in the UK. But if we want to change it over time, that will have to go through the ordinary uh, parliamentary procedures. Now, I think what soon became clear um, as this debate evolved was that the referendum campaign actually did have quite a big impact on the way that the debate was framed. And many people realised that within the single market, you'd still have to continue paying in uh, quite significant net contributions to the EU budget every year. You wouldn't have control over your economic regulation and your laws would still be overseen by the European Court of, uh, European Court of Justice. Um, you wouldn't have control of immigration. And actually, another thing that people realised was it would make it far less easy to sign third-party free trade deals as a member of the single market. And the, the simple reason for that is that it's very difficult to negotiate um, uh, service agreements with third countries if you don't control the regulation which governs those services. So once people realised all of these different things, they actually came to the same conclusion as many of the Remainers during the referendum campaign, which was that single market membership outside of the European Union in reality meant even less control than you have now over your economy, because not only do you have to do all of those things I just outlined, but also regulation gets made on you your behalf and you're not able to vote over it. So people realised this really wasn't a tenable political solution. Tom Clardy? Yeah, I, mean, I think I'm, I'm happy with the situation as it currently stands. I have high hopes for this bilateral trade agreement that um, Theresa May is going to pursue with the European Union. I do just want to push back very slightly on the regulation point because, I mean, uh, Ryan is talking a lot of sense there, um, and I agree with almost all of it. I do think, however, that sometimes the the regulatory argument against the single market can be overblown um, for the simple reason that I think that any bilateral trade agreement we agree with the European Union is probably going to contain a lot of regulatory equivalents um, provisions uh, for, to start with. I think that probably the same will be true of um, trade agreements we reach with third countries, like the United States, hopefully. Um, and more than that, actually, a lot of European Union single market regulation um, this was something that it, I only really found out about this during the referendum campaign, and I think it's an area that deserves a lot more study. Um, a lot of that regulation actually originates with global bodies. These are agreements that are reached at a, high, a higher level than the European Union, and the European Union was then just implementing them. And so I think you have a situation where, yes, we'd be free from the European Union's version of these rules, but we'd probably end up with them in some other way anyway. So. And I'm not saying you know it's good to have control over your own regulatory systems. I'd love to deregulate as much as possible. Um, but I don't think we should necessarily uh, be throwing an enormous party because leaving the single market means all that regulation is going to disappear. So don't smash the state. Smash the super state. Is that the basic? Well, I, I think it's I think it's certainly true that um, in many ways the single market imposed quite healthy constraints on government from a liberty perspective. You know, it stopped governments overtly subsidising different um, industries. It stopped those sort of protectionist, nationalist interests interest that you get. But a point where I disagree with Tom is given that he's um, acknowledged that lots of this regulation emanates from international bodies, it sort of does beg the question, what is the point of the European Union? And one of the arguments that I made throughout the campaign was that it was very difficult to think of any issue that governments should legitimately be acting upon, whether it's the provision of public goods or dealing with externalities or forming bodies of regulation that happen to fall along um, the borders of the European Union 
as a as the appropriate level of government. Um, issues that governments deal with tend to either be very local in nature, which is why we have the big debate here about federalism and the extent to which you should devolve powers um, down to, to local and state governments, or they tend to be global in nature. And it's, again, very difficult to think of many issues of, over which the European Union will be the appropriate level of governance. Going forward with respect to trade between the United States and Great Britain, of course, uh, a you may have heard about a train that recently arrived in London from China. And it, it seems that as uh, President Donald Trump has uh, is putting together his trade agenda and putting uh, people in places of power to influence and implement that agenda, the rest of the world is not really waiting for uh, those decisions to be made. They are moving ahead and they're trying to uh, secure trading partners as best they can. Well, we, we had a huge contrast last week, didn't we? On, on Thursday, we had Theresa May talk in front of the Davos elite, saying that she wanted the Britain to, to lead the world in a new global free trade agenda. She was talking about free trade deals with China and Brazil and Australia, New Zealand and a host of other uh, new and old allies. And then on Friday, you had the inaugural address of Donald Trump talking about how protection would lead uh, to prosperity. Now, bizarrely, despite those that ideological chasm um, and, and despite the, the evidence from that, that the people who suggest that Trump and Brexit are part of the same anti-trade phenomena um, appear to be wrong. Put all that aside, um, somehow we've got to a situation where on Friday, Theresa May is coming to visit Donald Trump and a US-UK trade deal seems to be on the agenda. And the reason that I think this is on the agenda, despite this big ideological difference, um, is really down to the politics. Um, the UK is very keen to show that it's making a success of its post, um, of, post of the post-Brexit world, and so wants to be seen to sign a big, important free trade deals with third countries, and obviously the US, and you don't get any more important country than the US in that regard. And I think also it helps Donald Trump politically if he were to get a deal like this. Um, because I think it would help assuage some of the fears of the more free trade elements of the Republican Party, that he wasn't completely overtly hostile to trade, and that actually there were certain uh, countries, particularly with developed Western countries, that he was willing to um, e even make deepen those trade ties that, that currently exist. So I think politically this seems to be a, a match, um, even though ideologically the two, at least rhetorically, couldn't, couldn't seem further apart on the trade issue. Mm -hmm. And is uh, Great Britain more amenable to trade with countries that are poorer than Great Britain? Uh, this is the United States. Uh, as you mentioned, Ryan, before we started recording, it seems uh, that Donald Trump seems perfectly willing to uh, have all this trade with these uh, countries that are wealthy and westernized, uh, but not so much with countries that are developing. Well, I think part of that is true. I think that Donald Trump, at least the way that I've seen it, and Tom might differ in his view on this, seems to particularly want to protect certain types of workers in certain industries, particularly in manufacturing industries and the Rust Belt and the car industry and, and, and those sort of areas. He wants to insulate those from foreign competition. Now, of course, one of the beauties in that regard of a free trade deal with the UK is that manufacturing represents quite a small proportion of, um, of the UK economy. And actually, what you'd be discussing if you were agreeing a US-UK trade deal is really high-end business services. 
um, things that wouldn't affect uh, a lot of that electorate that Donald Trump is trying to reach out to. So I don't think it interferes too much with that that agenda that he's trying to push, and that's why he's more amenable to it. Personally, you don't hear this debate much in the UK. You don't hear this debate that distinguishes between um, emerging markets and advanced countries when it comes to trade. I think there's a broad consensus on all sides. We might disagree about the means of achieving it, that free trade per se tends to be a good thing, and that um, high levels of protection not only adversely affect your consumers by raising prices, but also distort the um, distort the structure of the economy away from areas that you're most productive at. So I think there is a consensus there, and, and obviously that's a big difference with uh, Donald Trump. And I think this this is one of the most uh, one of the best things that you can see from Theresa May's speech earlier this week. Um, one of the most interesting things, actually, is the way she has shifted politically since becoming prime minister. Um, now, and I, th- I think I've said on here before, she doesn't really seem to have a free market bone in her body. She's a different kind of conservative, but I think she's also open to persuasion by her colleagues and her advisers and so on. And I think early on in her premiership, um, there were there were signs that Britain might sort of pull back a little bit from that free trade ethos. Um, certainly from the, the kind of laissez-faire thing, she was talking a lot about a new industrial strategy and so on. Um, I think what the speech at Davos actually um, has suggested is that she's shifted position and actually she now wants Britain, uh, maybe this is because of Trump, um, to be that real leader for free trade globally. Um, and, and, and actually sort of that kind of mood music I think is going to be pretty helpful in the Brexit, um, the, the effort to actually leave the European Union to negotiate a new trade trade deal, because I think a lot of people, uh, European policymakers, um, they're terrified of Donald Trump. They don't understand the whole phenomenon, um, and they definitely don't like what he's saying. Um, And I think that that strengthens Britain's position in those negotiations quite significantly, because if the US is not going to lead on issues like trade um, and liberal internationalism, then I think Britain wants to step into that place. There's a big shift, though, in both countries, and I think this is another area that unites them and makes a deal easier. I think both Britain outside the European Union and Donald Trump's US government seem to prefer bilateralism in trade deals to multilateralism. We've already seen Trump pull out of the negotiations on TPP. He's talked about renegotiating NAFTA and moving that towards a bilateral deal um, with Canada. Um, A big part of the the Brexit campaign, a big part of the EU referendum debate was this idea that actually negotiating as as one of 28 different countries made it incredibly burdensome and, and long-winded, a long-winded process to actually agree trade deals with other countries. Mm-hmm. You had um, issues where there were minor industries in certain, uh, certain EU economies objecting to the use of um, certain names and things for certain products being used in, in other countries. So um, you had a situation where a small country like Iceland, for example, outside of the European Union could, ad- could agree a free trade deal with a country like China. Mm. But the European Union, despite being this so-called um, economic powerhouse, was nowhere near achieving the same thing. So I think we are in a situation now where multilateralism, at, at least today, appears to be dead. And uh, the UK and the US mm seem to be two of the countries that are moving most quickly away from it towards this this brave new world of bilateralism. And I think multilateralism, you're right, it it seems to have been dying for some time, and I think the nails may be going in the coffin. Um, Now, I think it it probably bears mentioning that if some of our colleagues from the Trade Department were here, they'd point out that you know bilateral trade agreements can be fantastic. They can genuinely liberalise trade. Um, they can be a good way of, of promoting that freedom. At the same time, you can sometimes end up with this complex web of different competing bilateral agreements, which uh, taken together frustrates the overall 
uh, intention that in fact too many bilateral agreements um, can lead to less trade, or at least it leads primarily to trade diversion rather than genuine free trade. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen because of what Theresa May is doing, um, but I think we should be aware to that, of that possibility. Ryan Bourne is the R. Evan Scharf Chair in the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Tom Clarity is editor of Cato Journal. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.